This one was a very special episode for me. As the Good Future podcast has developed, the scope has expanded and I've been able to speak to leading minds across the spectrum. From finance heavyweights on one side, over to those working in the field, dealing directly with some of the world's biggest challenges. The aim of this show is always to bring these forces together to show that business and finance can be powerful agents of positive change. And so it was a thrill to speak with Jacqueline Novogratz. She left a successful career in banking in New York when she was 25 to head to Rwanda with hopes of launching a microfinance fund. It didn't go quite as planned, but she persevered. Along the way, she worked for the World Bank and for UNICEF. She founded leadership programs at the Rockefeller Foundation. And then in 2001, she founded Acumen, a not-for-profit that invests patient capital in businesses that provide critical goods and services to people living in poverty. Acumen has invested $128 million of patient capital to build more than 130 social enterprises across Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and the United States. These companies have leveraged an additional $611 million of invested funds and brought basic services like affordable education, healthcare, clean water, energy, and sanitation to more than 308 million people. Now that's impact. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Jacqueline really is a force of nature. She has a heart of gold, but she also has a steely focus on how to get a deal across the line. And I feel I've found a kindred spirit in Jacqueline. We're both translators, straddling the worlds of finance and social development, trying our best to tell the stories of hope in a world that's looking more chaotic by the day. I really hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. There's so many valuable insights here, especially towards the end when Jacqueline offers advice on how we can all shift our careers to have more purpose. All right, let's get into it. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if this conversation hit you in the feels like it did for me, please consider sending it on to a friend or a colleague, which is someone who you think needs it. I'm always keen to get these stories out to as many people as possible to keep the positive impact flowing. And another group on a mission to bring more positive impact is RIA. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They're a great supporter of the show. They have over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally and the largest network of people and organizations engaged in responsible, ethical and impact investing across Australia and New Zealand. You can check them out at responsibleinvestment.org to find out more. All right, on with the show. Let's dive in. Here's my chat with Jacqueline Novogratz. Here we go. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Look, I've been reading your latest book. It's called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. It paints such a colourful picture of your life. And and what stuck out to me was the way your career brought together the world of finance and banking with solving social development issues. I mean, these are usually career paths that are are kept separate. But to me, it makes a lot of sense. and, And it's easy to see why you ended up involved in impact investing, which is, of course... It's all about broadening access to capital markets, but it's so much more than that. 
and, and you clearly see beyond the numbers. Do you still have the same drive today as you did in your, your early 20s when you left New York and arrived in Rwanda? Yeah, John, I actually would say, and my team would probably reinforce, that I have more drive today. All you have to do is look around at the world. And if the pandemic has done nothing except put the whole world into lockdown, so has it also exposed the gaping wounds of all of our systems. In many ways, the the pandemic has been like a heat-seeking missile aimed squarely at the poor and shown us that while capitalism, the capital markets have done enormous things for the world, so have they left us um, more divided and unequal than ever in my lifetime. And so I feel like I've spent the last 35 years building a whole suite of tools to reimagine capitalism. And um, now's the time to put them into action. You know, you spend so much time traveling. And before we jump on the recording, you sort of talked about how much you'd missed it. I was wondering if perhaps it was a, a break for you from not having to travel. But obviously, yeah, you said you've missed. You know, what are the reports you're getting from um, from the ground of countries that, you know, don't have the healthcare systems we do in, in Australia and the US um, and countries that probably don't have the testing that we do? Yeah, well, one of the principles of of acumen and certainly of the book is that of moral imagination and, and this idea of immersion, getting very close to the people that you're serving. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, how will I continue to get close to the customers of our companies? At the same time, what we were hearing from both our entrepreneurs and our fellows, because acumen also has a big academy, uh, was that the jobs they had created, and, and Acumen is, is responsible for creating tens of thousands of jobs around the world, were going to go away if there wasn't some kind of emergency assistance to help companies get through this period. And so we reached out to our community, and for the first time in our history, we quickly raised uh, grant funding and then turned it around into almost a rapid deployment unit across the world, very decentralized and started to give small grants to our companies so that they could keep people in their jobs and make it through this period. As a result, the learning that we got was extraordinary. And I really had a chance, uh, tragically, frankly, to see what it meant in a place like the Nairobi slums where we have a company that supports early childhood daycare. You put that on lockdown and send all these little kids home now they don't get even one good meal a day. Their parents have, aren't allowed to leave the room. Um, the level of violence, hunger, uh, stress just went through the roof. And so we watched our companies not only pivot in terms of trying to find new ways for people to work, but also finding ways to be the emergency mechanism and get kids who could not go to school, educational materials, food packets, uh, in ways that has been life-changing for me and really eye-opening. And tell me a little bit more about Acumen. It's a not-for-profit you, you funded, and I think the structure really is very interesting. I mean, people will understand, you know, the normal structure of a, of a not-for-profit and sort of charitable donations, um, and then, you know, impact investing is sort of a, a separate entity, but you seem to combine the two. Can you sort of fill us in on that? We're um, a complex organization that goes after complex problems. Our mission is to solve change the way the world tackles poverty. At the heart of it, this nonprofit is what we would call patient capital. So we raise charity, we turn around and we invest long-term patient capital equity or debt into entrepreneurs that are focused on solving 
the big problems of our time, healthcare, education, energy, and agriculture. By long-term, I mean 10 to 15 years. The money that comes back to Acumen is reinvested in innovation for the poor. We've invested about 130 million, which has then leveraged about 850 million of more traditional capital into the companies in which we have invested in sort of 300 million people. As our companies got bigger, John, and we needed to raise much larger amounts of capital, uh, we assumed traditional impact investors would be there at the ready, but indeed they were not. So we've created three for-profit impact funds as well that can then help lead 50, $60 million rounds to grow our companies. A company like D-Light, which works in the off-grid energy space, now has 100 million people that it has brought energy access to. So that's the second piece of acumen. We have the philanthropic-backed patient capital funds. We have the three for-profit funds. And then along the way, we saw it's one thing to create new financial instruments, What's also needed is, is human capital. And so we've built Acumen Academy as the world's school for social change, whereby we are identifying social entrepreneurs all around the world, trying to give them the skills, the tools, the, the, the cohorts to enable them on their journey because we've learned the importance of building character and not just having good business plans. So in a nutshell, we have now become a constellation where we invest the right kind of capital in the right kind of character surrounded by the right community for change. Yeah, it sounds like a complete ecosystem. So interesting. And, and to dig a little deeper into those funds. So you're saying the early funds had uh, were funded by donor funds. Is that right? And then funds like the Kawi Safi Fund are, are for profit. And so does that mean you're sort of a, a private equity manager and you sort of have limited partners? The nonprofit has a for-profit subsidiary called Acumen Capital Partners. Acumen Capital Partners then is the technically the fund manager for the three um, funds that then have managing directors. And in, it's too complex, but sometimes we'll play a GP role or an LP role within. But it's been fascinating to see that you can take the values of standing with the poor, looking at uh, overall sustainability, into the for-profit impact space, but it requires that early stage investing that almost nobody wants to do to get the companies truly investment ready for the impact investors. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and that's obviously the, the definition of patient capital. And yeah, I'm so interested to try and dig into, you know, this model that it sort of has the, the financial structures that we would understand, you know, maybe in no, name only, that obviously on the ground, it, it's so very different. You've got experience from traditional banking, you know, in, on Wall Street, and you found yourself in completely different situations. And so maybe using the Kawisafi Fund as an example, you know, what are some challenges of getting that project off the ground that a, a private equity manager in, in New York might not come across? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Because when I started Acumen, people kept saying, I don't understand why you're not a for-profit. If you create a product that people want, the market will just take it. It'll go viral. And I was like, well, our customers make 2 to $3 a day. They have very little trust. They live in communities that are full of bureaucracy, corruption, a lack of skills, and almost no infrastructure. And so we've got to go in and build products and services that they have never had before and find a way to make it a viable company. That does not happen in a three to five year period. Uh, we have to find a way to give patient capital 
this long-term equity. And of course, it was much longer term than I even I originally thought. The best example probably is D-Light, which starts in 2007. Two guys with a, a solar light, about $30, a dream to eradicate kerosene, which at the time, now mind you, 130 years after Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, was this, we had a situation where 1.5 billion people in the world, one in five of us, had no access to electricity. You know, that's a situation that is not only unproductive, but it is, frankly, unjust and it is dangerous. And so um, all we could really bet on was the fact that these guys had a technology that made sense to us and they had the character to really go the distance. They would listen to their, the poor as customers, not see them as charitable recipients waiting for somebody to give them something. They would design the, the, the solar from the perspective of the poor in ways that really listened to them. And they had the capacity to build a team around them that could take this to scale. At least that was our bet. As I said, it took longer than we thought because we hadn't really thought through the financing. So while it made sense to us that a low-income person who might make $3 a day, let's say $100 a month, could afford a $30 unit on a daily basis, that person might have 50 cents left at the end of the day to buy kerosene. But they certainly weren't able to save $30 to pay for, pay for this. And there were no financing mechanisms available. So that we also had to figure that out. It took a number of years for D-Lite. Um, and it took a number of rounds that we would bridge or support. We also put uh, 12 different team members into the company, which is when we started to understand the importance of bringing talent into areas where the real talent wants to work for larger firms that can pay them a lot of money. And, um, and the real lesson for us, as I said, is to watch a company uh, get to a point where Kawasaki then can come in and put $6 million in at a pop so that it could really take off and attract other kinds of capital so that it can be today a $100 million profitable company. It also helps set off an energy revolution, just one company. Acumen now grew with it. We are the largest off-grid solar investor for the poor in the world. I watched, personally, a revolution take place. The energy companies now represent about 380,000 jobs and are, that are real careers for low-income people. And so now, going back to your first question, in COVID, those companies are really at crisis. We, as a world, say, you know, we're, we're going after SDG 7, universal electrification. And while over the last 15 years, we've made huge strides, there's still almost a billion people on the planet with no access to electricity, about 800 million. Most of those are individuals are in Africa. And so um, Acumen has been part of catalyzing and then building a coalition of 20 funders going from grant makers to traditional investors, um, investing houses, uh, to put together a 90 million dollar concessionary debt fund so that we can ensure that these companies will actually make it through this crisis. That's what excites me about this moment in history. I do not think we would have seen this kind of swift movement and understanding of concessionary instruments and the need to be that nimble and flexible even 10 years ago. Look, there really are so many things that we take for granted, you know, electricity, but also this access 
to finance. And so that brings me to banking, which obviously you've come very close to in both developed and less developed countries. And I think, you know, few people really understand the workings of it. And, and in some ways it's really perverse because to get a loan, you need collateral, which means it's easier for people to get a loan when they don't need it, which of course brings us to microfinance. And I'd be interested to understand, you know, I think a lot of people know about Grameen Bank and, and there's obviously been a lot of developments in the last 20 or 30 years. Where is microfinance at at the moment? Hmm, that's a great question, John. So I actually s- helped start the first microfinance bank in Rwanda in 1986, which was about 10 years after Muhammad Yunus started Grameen Bank. And just to give the listeners a sense of the world at that moment, there were only a, a handful of microfinance organizations. And the debate amongst all of us was whether it was ethical to charge any interest at all. In a country like Rwanda, 35 years ago, uh, people made $112 a year was the average average income. And there were very few financial in- institutions at all, certainly none for the poor. So you fast forward to a multi-billion dollar industry. It's almost a hundred billion dollar industry today. Uh, And there are many different levels of sophistication across the world. Uh, There are funds of funds for microfinance. I would say that most nations understand today the need for affordable finance for all people. And I have come to see affordable credit as a human right, uh, just as increasingly we're seeing cell phones as an essential product to make it through. Ironically, John, Acumen America has surprised me in that we're seeing in the United States, low-income people often pay about 300% per year, which is what the traditional money lenders in feudal Pakistan, where Acumen has a bank, pay outside our bank. And so it has reinforced for me that the, that the old story of the, of the money lenders in the marketplace remains alive and well for low-income people and that they will not get out of poverty if they are paying a, a multiple of 30 to 40 times what their wealthy counterparts pay, particularly when they have a much better track record at repayment. When you look at microfinance repayment records, they tend to be anywhere from 95 to 99% in the institutions that Acumen has backed as equity investors, we see um, probably 97 to 99% returns. And, and why do you think there is such um, a higher rate? Is it kind of the, the low-hanging fruit of, of being the first offering of capital, that it's like there is that obvious demand and that as it broadens, there might be that slippage that we see um, in the West or sort of, you know, I guess there, there are more nuanced social reasons. How do you see that? Well, I don't take it for granted. And I've seen microfinance banks also blow up when trust blows up. So much of this is based on trust. Um, and certainly around the financial crisis, there was also a crisis in India that went like wildfire through the microfinance institutions. But microfinance tends to be awarded to low-income women often in groups of solidarity. So the women provide collateral for each other. And so if you and I were a group, you would get a loan and I would get my loan once you repaid your loan. And so we have a vested interest in ensuring that we, we repay. Many of the best microfinance institutions also see finance as a practicum for greater participation in the economy. In other words, 
I'll give you a small loan out of the box. And over time, as you repay, you build your own credit record with me. And so there are a lot of built-in incentives. And again, I see this in Acumen America as well, where so many immigrants who come to the United States, they don't have any credit record because they're new. And yet, and they often come with nothing, particularly if they're refugees. And yet with companies like Isuzu in, in the United States, people can look at whether they pay their rent as a proxy for creditworthiness. And we're seeing very similar, very high repayment rates. This is an opportunity to establish yourself. And so I think we need as a design principle as we look in the post-COVID world at how we reimagine capitalism, a definition of success that insists on including low-income people and the vulnerable, not just the wealthy. And when you start to think from that perspective, it's possible to build financially sustainable and robust uh, companies. It just takes a little longer sometimes. And changing gears a little bit, I just wanted to dig into this idea of of moral revolution. It's the title of your book, but just those two words alone carry with them so many expectations. um, And I think they can mean different things to different people. What does the word moral mean to you? The the word moral is um, actually a very simple, uh, it means to act on behalf of others and not just yourself. I'm a capitalist. I believe in the power of markets. Rampant capitalism without any guardrails, which is what we've seen increasingly over the last couple of decades, has reinforced a hyper-individualism that has within it an ethos that what is good for me will necessarily be good for you, and that I can't win unless you lose. The idea of moral is not a set of righteous rules prescribed from on high, but rather it's an inner understanding that with privilege comes responsibility and that it is the role of leaders to act and serve others and not just themselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think on the surface I was, you know, when I was asking that question, I felt that that our commercial world really is, as you said, so individualistic. And that's kind of contrary to this moral view of thinking more about your community. But then, you know, you did talk about microfinance having this inbuilt sense of social accountability. And, and it really was a, a neat way, I think, to represent, yeah, this concept that community can be positive in, in this commercial landscape. But then in, I guess, the world I live in where I'm bombarded by advertising and striving to make myself better and everything really is focused on the individual and whether that's a sort of a a creeping modernity of of trying to drive you know the psychology of getting me to buy more when if it's we're more community-minded uh then it's it's more efficient i'm not going to spend as much it might pull gdp growth back but but it might um you know help the community work a lot better how do you see that, that really broad and, and pretty um, sort of major challenge of, of pulling back this, this drive towards individualism and, and bringing more community spiritedness? <laughs> yeah, it's such a great question, John. I would have probably answered it uh, differently before the pandemic. And I think I, when I wrote the book, I thought that the, the mountain was still worth climbing, but it would be a lot steeper. Now I think there's a recognition that we're not seeing a creeping individualism. I 
I actually think we are recognizing that we saw a galloping individualism and a definition of success that was focused on money, power, and fame. And yet it's left us not only divided and divisive, but with a level of isolation, loneliness, depression, at record levels across the world, certainly when it comes to the quote-unquote winners of the capitalist and technology revolutions. And so my own sense is there's not only recognition, but that there's a yearning for belonging and to bring back more of a spirit of community. I'm seeing so many of our entrepreneurs, John, around the world build viable economic models, insisting on creating communities of trust within them, which also sounds counter to the traditional capitalist, more transactional model. But I was just uh, speaking to a group of Latin American entrepreneurs and talking about some of our chocolate and coffee companies, whereby they source chocolate and coffee, which is two commodities that many of us live live with and some of us live for, produced by some of the poorest farmers on earth who also are 58 years um, old on average. And these entrepreneurs have recognized that if you want to keep farmers in the supply chain, number one, two, and if you, if you understand that customers want to know that their coffee came from farmers who were paid not just in fair ways, but in sustainable ways, using practices that themselves were sustainable, well, then you have to change the whole game. And so they're developing companies that start by understanding the production costs to the farmers themselves, negotiating a sustainable wage, and then building those costs with great transparency all along the value chain in ways that are creating higher quality coffee, farmers that do feel that they are part of a community of trust, and customers that feel quite proud to be buying coffee from from these particular farmers. As those companies scale and and get bigger and bigger buyers, and there are already a handful of buyers like Stumptown and Heart Coffee, others that purchase from them, I believe this becomes part of that revolution that may to some sound like a, a scary word and to others more just a clarion call that this is not for some of us. This is work for all of us. Mm, and, and revolution often can be sort of an extreme view of having to overthrow something. Do you see it as, as needing to be that uh, dramatic? I think the only thing we have to overthrow, John, is ourselves. We have to have a reckoning with ourselves. You know, we've grown up with the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto ourselves. And even libertarianism has come out of that to a, a level and degree. I think we need a new golden rule. Give more to the world than you take. Done. We start moving from that place, which sounds simple and is so hard to do. And we do a reckoning with ourselves, whether we're investors or corporate leaders or or employees, or consumers, or family members, and we start to see ourselves differently. We see ourselves as citizens, not just as consumers. We see our, our workers as full human beings, not inputs. And we take more seriously how we consume, produce, and serve. And I mean, you use that chocolate company as, as an example of, of how trust um, can build community into a, into a commercial relationship and how that can be 
of really positive economic outcomes. But then, of course, globalization is the challenge where you have this greater distance between the disparate stakeholders and the disparate elements of the supply chain. Um, and that can be when, when it breaks down because the manufacturer in, in one region is less invested in the community where the raw materials might be coming from. How have you guys dealt with that challenge of, of that growth you know, being required for scale and, and efficiency, but then the danger of breaking down those community bonds? I mean, I think that is the question, John. Um, I always say that distance dulls the moral imagination. And, um, and I remember 2008 talking to a hedge fund guy when it made no sense to me. You know, we had so many uh, derivative markets at play simultaneously that I said, you know, at the end of the day, somebody has to pay the repo man to go and get the houses of, of the people who were unable to pay their mortgages. Who is that? And he's like, no, Jacqueline, you're not understanding. Even if we lose, even if 90% of the homeowners default on their mortgages, my clients will stay whole. And I was like, no, no, you're not listening. Someone still is paying the repo, man. You're just so far away from those individuals that are purchasing those homes and taking out these loans that they should not be taking that you don't feel responsibility for them. And John, so I think that is a big part of the problem. Again, the good news for me is that even since 2008, we are seeing not only new technologies that are allowing us greater transparency, and, and frankly, I'm a believer that blockchain will allow us also to match value to contribution all the way down the supply chain. But more importantly, is this new generation that is searching for more inclusive, purpose-driven, sustainable companies, whether they are employees or customers. And frankly, I speak to more and more CEOs that themselves understand that there is a, a moral reason and there's also a fiduciary reason, certainly for the long term, to figure out how to, how to build that trust. Because I do think that this is what is, is most critical Going back to patient capital and the reason we need this early stage long-term investment is that even if everything should be working, it takes a long time to build that trust. So in the example of chocolate and coffee, the entrepreneurs understand very quickly from immersing with the farmers that what poor people value is not just one good season, but they, they value price stability so that they can actually make plans around whether they can send their kids to school in the next season, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It makes sense. And so the best of these companies are locking in a price, which is often three to four times global commodities prices. And yet when the global commodities price may, f may go above what the farmers are paying, which is very unusual, but has happened, the farmers want to, want to change the deal. And so when the company doesn't change the deal, the farmers feel like they've been betrayed. And so there's a real conversation. It's the hard conversations that have to happen as well, the showing up. And that's why where Acumen made some of its early mistakes was betting on incredible business plans with beautiful projections and the wrong character entrepreneur. What I have learned is that um, more of us need to invest in character first. And the business plans will catch up and the projections are never right anyway. And so um, 
if you're early stage and it is the right character of entrepreneur who is willing to immerse and understand community and the needs of community, they can design and deliver a product or service in ways that people value and can afford. They can build the teams that can help them scale. We have a lot of social capital, not just financial capital, to connect them to corporations, to policymakers if needed, so that at the end of the day, I've seen now a number of our companies um, reach not a few million people, but um, tens of millions. And in the case of Delight, 100 million. And I think we're just getting started. Mm, And stretching that a little bit more macro and maybe a little more philosophically, you know, we clearly live in a globalized world. Supply chains are interlinked. And yet prosperity hasn't found a balance. Do you think that prosperity in countries like Australia and the US can come at the cost of those in developed countries? Sorry, in less developed countries? The answer to these questions are never binary. Yes, it can. However, I think the opportunity is to hold these tensions, is to recognize that the name of the game should be shared prosperity and that shared prosperity is possible. The issue if you look at Africa on a macro level and compare it to China, is not that that exports is the evil that you know leaves Africa poor and the rest of the countries prosperous, right? Look at China. Um, you saw enormous development as a result of a manufacturing economy that depended on globalization. With parts of Africa what we've seen is the breadbasket for the world and um, too many companies depending on farmers to produce foodstuffs with no transformation, no processing. And so paying with these global commodities prices at frankly, completely outdated mechanisms for pricing those commodities. And we're not seeing enough of the companies capture the value that is and needs to be created on the continent. And so the value is what gets moved out without the transformative processing value add in practice. We also um, need to think and reward those companies for the impact that they create, not just the profits that they make. And I know you had Sir Ronald Cohen, who's a good friend um, of mine on your podcast, John, where he talks about the impact revolution and Certainly, we've been part of that. And in fact, Acumen spun out the work that we were doing on impact with our lean data work. And I actually believe you interviewed Sasha Dichter. Uh, We spun out um, lean data, 60 decibels, because it is so important that we learn to measure what matters and not just what we can count. My dream would be that as shareholders, we reward those companies not based on profits to shareholders alone because that's so short term in its orientation. But the kind of impact that they create in terms of the jobs built, the kinds of jobs, the positive and negative externalities to the environment, and, um, and frankly, the level of participation and ownership of the employees and the people they serve. And some of the companies that I'm proudest of at Acumen have done just that and have created assets in communities that have been ravaged by civil war and, and generational poverty and are now building themselves back 
And that is where business can be used as a tool for peace and as a tool for prosperity. But it has to be a shared prosperity or at the end of the day, it's empty. And it leaves us, with, us, us without dignity, not just amongst the low income people, but for all of us. And you mentioned 60 decibels uh, run by Sasha Dicta, which was uh, spun out of Acumen. Uh, and that business is all about listening. It is about impact measurement, but, but essentially it's built a way to listen to, to the stakeholders and the beneficiaries that often get missed. Um, and, and I think that that was one concept that came through in your book. It came up in almost all of your stories. It's a simple concept, but it's surprising how often it gets forgotten when well-meaning Westerners try to help other countries develop. Uh, I've had my own re revelations about how to really listen to people, and that was partly the work I've done in sort of traveling to other countries and, and trying to help in social development. But more recently, this podcast has played a huge role in, in helping me understand the power of, of active listening. Can you tell us about your own journey to, to become a better listener? Yeah, you know, I first went to Africa to change the world and had my ideas, as you said, and learned very quickly that most people, you know, don't want to be saved, certainly not by a, a young former banker that really had no understanding of culture nor command of local language. And, um, and so I, I failed quite dramatically when I first arrived 35 years ago. And I think that that was a, a great lesson in humility for me. And I began to recognize that if I didn't start by listening to the people I wanted to serve and frankly, drop the word help altogether from my vocabulary, um, if I didn't understand that this was about a mutual relationship, mutual transformation, then it didn't really, I was never going to be fully successful. And it's a lesson I've kept throughout. I told the story of Delight, and just to give you a, a sense that you know, we have to work on it our whole lives. Delight was still quite young, and um, the company was active in all of South Asia, except for Pakistan. And so I was in so the southern Punjab, actually at our agricultural bank. And so I knew that the households had some extra income at that point. And I was talking to a group of women. It was about 45 degrees, inhumanly hot. And uh, I was sitting with this group outside and I wanted to ask them about the lights. And I said, you know, we have this light. It cost about $7 because this was a, the entry product at that point, $7. And um, I'm wondering if I could get the, light, the company to license the product to Pakistan, would you be interested in buying it? This big woman leans forward. You know, her face is dripping in sweat. And she says, we don't want a light. Bring us a fan. We're hot. And I was like, excuse me? I don't have a fan. I have a light. And she, I said, you know, if you have this light, your kids can stay up late. They can study. You can talk to your friends. You can work. And she cut me off and said, we work enough. We're hot. Bring us a fan. And it was another reminder that even though I thought I was one of the world's great listeners, I was moving from the product that I had rather than the needs that were there. And it's taught me, and man, do we need this in our political climate, not just in economics, that the key to deep listening is to start a conversation from a place of inquiry, not certainty, and to listen with all of your senses, not just with your ears. I learned that over and over. 
in the work that we do. You said it was mostly you know, Westerners coming in, and that's true, but it's also elites and governments in their own countries. We are not listening to each other. In Ethiopia, government had full control of all of the chicken factories in the country, a whole chicken industry, which was completely broken. And in part, it was broken because the business models that had been imported were business models that assumed that if you gave a smallholder farmer a day-old chick, that farmer would have the capability of raising that chick till it was mature enough to lay eggs. And then, you know, game on. Well, as it turns out, it actually takes a lot of effort, vitamins, inputs to raise that little tiny chick. And so these two young guys came in to essentially reinvent the chicken market, which was at zero at the time in Ethiopia, and they turned the model on its head. They built a series of, um, of solutions, starting with agents, so college-educated people in some cases that would buy a 1,000 day-old chicks at a time using a microloan to uh, make that purchase. They'd sleep with those chickens. They did everything to make sure those assets actually grew. And when they got to let egg-laying age at 45 to 60 days, they would sell those grown chicks in batches of two or three to smallholder farmers whose average income was $350 a year. And over time, not only do those farmers see their incomes go up, but their children were getting eggs as well. And Ethio Chicken um, by now has impacted the lives of about 20 million smallholder farmers. Government has credited them with reducing child malnutrition by 11% in its largest region. And, uh, and the company has now moved into Rwanda and Uganda. And um, soon, who knows, maybe moving across the African continent. That's what listening allows us. Well, thank you for that, Jacqueline. I think that's, that's such an important element and, and it's something that I really hope my listeners take away today. I think I, think I have so many well-meaning people listening to this podcast and many of them are somewhat trapped in their cubicle at a, at a big finance organization. And I think many of them dream of, of throwing it in and, and working in humanitarian projects and they may uh, sort of romanticize that image. And I've certainly, I mean, I've, I've sort of had that, that view and, and I did take off and, and obviously my experiences were far different to what I expected. Uh, and that's what it's all about. That's when you have that personal growth. I'd love to hear, you know, you've obviously seen so many people sort of like me come in starry eyed um, and have their ideals I don't want to say crushed, but, but shifted. And you've probably seen that transformation. Um, are there some sort of methods or techniques that you use to, to try and help people, introduce people to this concept of listening? Um, you know, to say you're not here sort of to help, you're here as partners. You know, what's sort of the model that you use to try and help people, usher people through that? You know, we have a fellows program at Acumen. We have about 700 fellows around the world, but more important and more important, we have Acumen Academy, it's the World School for Social Change online, a whole selection of courses, free and not free, including a master course called The Path to Moral Leadership, which is essentially taking the 12 principles of the book. It's an 11-week course, and it's been extraordinary to be able to interact with um, now thousands of people around the world who are practicing some of this before they even go into the field. 
and finding um, how humbling it can be having really difficult conversations across lines of difference. We work in very conservative communities at Acumen, of course, in the developing world, but also in our own countries. So something as simple as do you wear a mask or do you not wear a mask could be a very interesting conversation. And what we're seeing is online through the Acumen courses, people will really go there. And the feedback that we're getting has been extraordinary in, for those individuals that want to be on the path that you're talking about. Whether they decide to leave their day job or, and I think this is critical, whether they are reimagining how they can be in their job and find the courage to push for change from within. Acumen partners with a number of corporations who, as I said, are, are on the journey to build more inclusive supply chains. When we work with companies like Unilever and IKEA and SAP, these two are long-term relationships. They are not always easy. And what helps us decide with whom we will partner and for how long are those companies that approach with both humility and audacity, that are willing to have the hard conversations and understand like we do that discomfort is really just a proxy for progress. And as the world more and more talks about the importance of stakeholders and not just shareholders, of long-term thinking, of measuring what matters, of impact, there's a hunger to reimagine all of our institutions. Some of the most morally courageous individuals I know actually are in the big companies, are in the big investment houses, often going against mighty powerful status quo. And yet that's what's needed right now, because underneath it, the only way we make the kind of change that builds a world that we are all able to flourish in and have that shared prosperity that you're talking about is when every single one of our systems changes itself. Mm. Oh, look, that's so great that that rolls into uh, sort of the, the final thought that I wanted to leave my listeners with today. And that was relating to some sort of tangible actions that people can take to sort of shift their career and their lifestyle to, to have more impact and have more purpose. And I think it's so interesting that you say that they don't actually have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that you can have massive impact in these big corporations. I think people get often get caught up in in the concept of ESG and impact investing in that they have to divest from all of the companies they're invested in and just find these pure green modern companies when in fact no it's the big old industrial companies that we need you know you can have so much impact shifting them and making them operate better and people can do that through their investments and they can do that through their career and where they work day to day. So, I mean, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but, but that's how I feel um, a, a lot of people are sort of having the shift. And that, that's a lot of my audience have come on board because they really feel that. Do you have any sort of tangible advice for, for, for people like that? Yeah. And I love how, I mean, in some ways you said it better than I could say it. You know, moral leadership is not the path purity. And I think that's what is tripping a lot of us up right now. And social media is reinforcing it, that we see things as all good or all bad. And if you're going to build something like Acumen, which works in, in some of the most important industries, water, healthcare, housing, energy, agriculture, 
but also as I tragically learned some of the most corrupt and ugly industries, you have to confront the imperfections of what it means to be human. You have to learn how to fight. It is hard. Um, we have no tolerance for corruption at Acumen. We've made incredibly painful decisions. When we succeed is when we find partners on the other side, sometimes in those ugly industries that also want to see change. And part of our work then, John, is to protect them within their companies, to build together, to have the, the humility to have those honest conversations. And so I would say, don't jump to righteousness. Look at the problems around you that you want to solve. Think hard about who you are as a person. And then start talking to people about where you can best be used. I've always wanted to be used up in my life, but I've known what my purpose is. And if you still don't know your purpose as you go through those, then I would say find a leader who you admire. Follow that leader. Even if the job they offer you isn't perfect. But this is about the journey, and the journey should start the minute that you decide you want to be on it. And so that's what I would leave finally with. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in my life is just start. Start where you are with what you have, but start. Because if you sit around looking for some perfect opportunity or thinking, I've got to leave this place, but I'm not going to leave until I find the perfect thing, then you end up just sitting around and purpose doesn't find people who are sitting at the starting blocks. I think one of Acumen's successes, and I've seen this through the pandemic as our entire organization reinvented itself, is that we sometimes fail, but I've learned that if you don't fail, you won't succeed. Uh, but we never are afraid of just starting and just starting again. And you do that enough times and suddenly, finally, you succeed. And so that's what I would say to people. We need, we need moral leadership in every one of our industries, every one of our universities to reinvent them. Uh, some of us are better at change on the inside. I was always better at change on the outside. But know who you are. And don't think that you have to be an entrepreneur. If you're an operator, you may be more important than the entrepreneur. I would never have built Acumen without extraordinary operators around me. If you love finance, social enterprises are desperate for really strong finance skills. Just don't think you know how to do it all. That goes back to your beautiful thing on listening. So this is the moment for us to see problems as opportunity take steps toward them and let the work teach us where we have to go next. Oh, that's so great. I think there's a lot of value there for people. And I think that's a really great starting point. I mean, I think personally, um, I often question where I've got to, but, but then I just come back to, to realizing that my journey is just getting started. And I think that not waiting for things to be perfect and having a perfect plan and waiting for the path to be worn ahead of you. I think that that's most important, that, that failure, accepting failure is really key here and almost rushing to that first failure. That's kind of the advice I try to give people and it sort of can be dangerous in some ways, but I just say, you know, you've got to grab it. It's inevitable because otherwise 
you're not uh, beating your own path, you will fail. So just rush towards that first one and embrace it. And, and look, I've had plenty of those and they're still coming, but we learn from it. And, and I think, you know, there are, there are operators and there are entrepreneurs, but I think if there's anything we can take away from Silicon Valley, uh, it's the concept of failing fast and, and the fact that that's, that perhaps we shouldn't even use the term failure. Perhaps we should call it experimentation. You know, that's what they'd say in the world of science. They don't fail. They just have many experiments. You know, it's not that they had 35 failures. They had 35 experiments before they found, you know, the right formulation of the vaccine. So, yeah, I hope people can um, can just take that first step. And, and if that's what people take away from this conversation today, then it's been a success. So thank you so much. Now, we'll let you go. But before I do... Do you have a book recommendation for us? Obviously, uh, your book is a great one. Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. But are there any other books that have had a really big impact personally? You know, maybe fiction, nonfiction, or or just what you've been reading while you've been isolated? I'm a huge reader, John. So there's so many books that have had enormous impact on me. Um, In the context of Black Lives Matter, thinking about... Seeing Every Human Being, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison was a, had a major impact. And then speaking of that work, Impact, right now I highly recommend Sir Ronnie Cohen's uh, book uh, by that title, Impact. In many ways, I use the language of moral in part because I'm looking at all of the industries. Uh, we're so connected to building companies using our finance as a tool. Ronnie is really looking particularly at the investing and the impact investing industry, which Acumen helped build. But I was really speaking to change makers in general. And so they're, a, they're really, I think they're a lovely companion um, duo. And so I would recommend um, his book, Impact. Very good. Thank you for that, Jacqueline. Uh, we look, really appreciate all of your insights today. I mean, I think people have have felt your commitment to this cause through your voice and, and you know, your, your work and your actions prove that out. So thank you for giving us some time today. And, and I think, as you said, there's so uh, many offerings from Acumen. Um, they, can, they can find it all on the website, fellowships, the training, all of these options, which are really powerful and building this ecosystem. And, you know, that could be people's first step on their journey if, if they're sort of feeling powerless and wanna drive towards more purpose no better place to start well thank you so much it's really been a privilege john and uh i look forward to more conversations oh i'd love that thank you jacqueline take good care